Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you. Let me just begin by saying you will notice that there is a photographer on campus for not only this morning, but for the next few days. So look your best and uh, smile brightly, but uh, there you go. Aspen's got a great smile on this morning. Um, anyway, it's great to have you all with us this morning. Spring's finally arrived, we think. I've thrown off my coats and gloves, and I hope I've done that for the rest of the season. We'll see about that. I'm guessing that some of you have a bit of spring fever. I know I do. Mark Twain defines spring fever as not quite knowing what it is you, what it is you do want, but it's something you want so bad your heart aches for it. Perhaps that's where you are this morning as well. Most of us, I'm guessing, don't have heartache around routine as usual, and so it's good to have May term where our routines are shifted just a bit, uh, a bit and change the pace just a bit for all of us as well. For most kinds of fever, I'm guessing today's speaker could provide us with a cure. I'm delighted to welcome this morning's speaker who took time from his routine to share a bit of his journey from a kid in Buenos Aires to becoming a world-renowned cancer specialist. Dr. Douglas Schwarzendruber, a member of Goshen College class of 1978, is currently the medical director of the Goshen Center for Cancer Care. Dr. Schwarzendruber has been the lead author and principal investigator of a breakthrough study he began while directing cancer research for the National Institute of Health on the use of a vaccine in treating skin cancer. The clinical trial was one of the first studies to prove vaccines might have a medical benefit against cancer. Last year, as some of you may know and have and read, if you get Time Magazine, Dr. Schwarzenberg was named to Time Magazine's prestigious annual list of one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And we believe Time was right in selecting Doug. He's a prime example of the power of influence and a force for good in our community and the world. Doug and I were classmates at Goshen College. He and I spent time in the same labs and many of the same classes. For a time, we were both pre-med students learning under the same great professors. It occurs to me that if not for a twist of fate, perhaps, that took me down a different path, I might be on Time's list of 100 most influential people, and he might be president of Goshen College, who knows? I'm kidding about that. Uh, seriously, he's much smarter than I am, and uh, he represents, as I hope I do, the great values that we try to instill in all of our students here at Goshen College. He's a Christ-centered servant leader, a passionate learner, and a global citizen and embodies what we try to do at Goshen College and which he is doing for the world, that is, little by little, piece by piece, uh, healing the world. In a few weeks, he'll assume a new position as System Medical Director of the IU Health Cancer Services, as well as the Associate Director of Clinical Operations at IU Simon Center in Indianapolis. Today, he'll be discussing a bit the advance in medicine through lifelong learning. Besides being one of the smartest people I know, Doug is also a man of faith, a man of humility, and a great husband. Some of you know Diane White and may even have 
been given shots by her. She's the director of our health center here on campus and is a, a truly great father as well. Alicia, who just graduated 2011, will be headed to do her internship with the Colts in Indy, and Jared, their son, who's at IU Purdue. Well, with all of that as by way of introduction, I'm, I'm grateful and thankful that Doug is with us, and I'm, I'm pleased to call him my friend. So will you join me in welcoming Dr. Doug Swirchinger. Thank you, Jim, for that uh, very kind introduction, and uh, also uh, Richard and uh, Jim for inviting me here, both Jims. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to share with you today, uh, and I must say about the Time 100, you know, one of the other people on that list was Lady Gaga, so could you imagine her as your president here? Um, it, the, the list actually is very interesting because it's not necessarily the, and, and they put it this way, it's not necessarily the smartest or brightest or, uh, or most accomplished, it's the most influential. And so you can be a good and a bad influence and hopefully I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good influence and that's why I made the list. Um, what I thought I would do today is share a little bit uh, about uh, what I see as important in learning. Uh, I was trying to think how to tie what I do, which can be very technical. So I'm going to actually boil it down to something that's, I think, very uh, interesting, hopefully, to you uh, and understandable that talks about advances in medicine and in particular in cancer, but at the same time, try to emphasize primarily at the beginning and at the end of the talk that learning is a lifelong process. And I know some of you are maybe graduating now or anticipate that uh, before too long. Uh, we never stop learning. And so the first slide I uh, put, uh, uh, decided to share with you is actually about a timeline. And uh, yes, I was born here in Goshen, and my parents uh, were missionaries in Argentina, so I traveled with them, didn't have a choice, uh, and started my schooling there in Argentina near Buenos Aires, as Jim uh, mentioned, and uh, came uh, then to Goshen High School for the last two years uh, to finish high school and then to Goshen College. And, you know, I look at nowadays when you decide to go to school, you, you travel around, you visit very, various places, and I, for some reason I, I was just coming to Goshen College. So I didn't look anywhere else, I didn't interview anywhere else, and put my application in, and fortunately they accepted me. And uh, graduated here from Goshen in 1978. Uh, then went on to medical school at Indiana University in Indianapolis, and. Uh, did my residency there in general surgery, uh, then went on to do a fellowship at the National Cancer Institute, and by this point, our children actually calculated that I'd been in school for 28 years. So that's part of what I'm here to share with you. You never stop learning, because even then, if you look at what I call this post-fellowship period of training, uh, and I call that school of life, uh, there is so much to learn that is beyond books and beyond what uh, you will learn in these uh, walls and uh, classrooms here at Goshen College. But the, the value of the education I took forth was not being smart. And actually, it's not true that I'm that smart. I'm just sort of persistent and bullheaded and, and just hardworking. Uh, and that would be another message to share is just pick your passion, pick your goal, set your mind, focus, and get there. And, and actually, yesterday we heard. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, at the cancer survivor event in, in the uh, uh, 
uh, at the Performance Center here on campus uh, from Alan Hobson, who is uh, an individual that actually climbed Mount Everest. And, and that was his, his message, was uh, just set your sights and do it. It took him three times, but it's no, no small feat to climb Mount Everest. At 29,035 feet is the highest mountain on Earth. So we have our mountains, but we pick our sights and, and do it, just do it. So what I want to share a little bit, and, and I'm going to focus now uh, more, is on cancer. And that's what I deal with on a day-to-day -day -day basis right across the street. Uh, if you're under 40, most of the people in this room are, uh, your number one cause of death is accidents. But uh, after 40, and if you look at on the left here, under the age of 85, you see that there are two principal causes of death. Uh, number one is cancer, number two is uh, heart disease. And so my career has been focused really on cancer. And what types of cancer do people, uh, do people get? And so if you are a woman, uh, the most likely form of cancer is breast cancer, then second is lung cancer, and third is colon cancer. If you're a man, it's prostate cancer, then lung cancer, then colon cancer. And you know, what, what are these, you know, what is cancer? Basically, cancer is uh, cells in the body that grow and can't stop growing. They just, they are dysregulated. They don't know when to quit growing. And consequently then, by, by having this tumor grow, you uh, begin to interfere with other vital functions in the body. And our goal is, first of all, prevent it. Number two, diagnose it early. And then if we do diagnose it, treat it and effectively treat it. And we are making lots of progress because now we cure about 60% of cancer, actually. Uh, which is really good. And if you're actually thinking of childhood cancers, which are less common, I've already told you under 40, the number one cause of death is accidents, not cancer. We actually can cure about 80% of childhood cancers. So we've done very well with the childhood cancers. Now, what are people dying from? So the bottom half of the slide, you see women, the number one killer is actually lung cancer. The same thing in men. What is that related to? Cigarette smoking. 85% of those cases we can link to smoking. Not only all the other bad effects on the cardiovascular system uh, that are related to smoking. So my number one pitch, I guess, would be is if you want to prevent it, just uh, uh, don't, don't smoke. So some of the advances. So first of all, we say, well, let's, let's diagnose cancer better. This machine is called a PET scan. Now, nothing to do with your dog or cat. Uh, but this is a, stands for positron emission tomography. This is what it looks like, and we can get some really cool images uh, on the left-hand side here. This is a CAT scan, and it's a picture taken through the pelvis. Uh, so if you just pretend it's like a pancake and take a slice out of the body so that you can kind of image, uh, this is the hip bone, basically, and this would be the bladder. So in this area here, you don't see anything. However, now if you do a PET scan, uh, this is newer technology that helps you see this little bright spot that otherwise you would miss. So this is new technology. So you've probably heard about CAT scans. They're pretty common and widely available. PET scans are a little less widely available, but have been very helpful to us in terms of diagnosing cancer. So we have made, I think, big advances in the diagnosis of cancer. Now, how about treatment? Uh, one form of treatment is radiation. Radiation, you don't really see it or feel it, but you deliver uh, electrons uh, to uh, a patient, and you can target it very precisely. And this particular machine here, called tomotherapy, is a unit like we have right across the street, helps to pinpoint the cancer 
to deliver radiation more precisely. So here's an example. So here's another picture you can see, I'm sorry, what a, a CAT scan would look like here. So these are actually bones. These are bones and bones. And, uh, and then on top of that, we've drawn uh, the picture of a, of a prostate right here, which is really what we want to treat. This prostate has prostate cancer in it. And so we want to target radiation to that particular gland. We would try to spare the bladder that sits right in front of it. We'd try to spare the rectum, which sits right behind it. And with our uh, more conventional radiation therapy, this is the area that would be irradiated. And as you can see, you're going to have some side effects because you're also going to deliver radiation to normal tissues in front and behind. So the new tomotherapy machine, like that picture I showed you, can very precisely pinpoint and consequently give higher doses of radiation, which is more effective, and now has less side effects because you don't injure the tissues beside it. Another uh, example of advances in radiation treatment, uh, this picture here is, uh, this is a CAT scan of a breast. So I'm sorry we're showing some off-color pictures here. Please forgive me. But um, this, in the center of the, of the cavity, this is where a cancer was. So this is, uh, this is where breast cancer was, and uh, uh, that was removed surgically and left a cavity. And uh, now this catheter can be placed in the center here, and this, through the center of the catheter, you can deliver high doses of radiation, which treats this, this perimeter of the cavity. And why is this good? Well, a woman that had a lumpectomy for breast cancer would normally receive about five to six weeks of radiation treatment. Now you can do this whole treatment in a week. So if a woman needs to return to work, uh, she can more quickly get back to her life and to uh, uh, the things that are important to her and not spend so much time coming back and forth for, for radiation. Uh, another example here is of how we can deliver radiation internally. So if you picture here, this is, it's hard to see, but uh, these are tumors that are uh, inside the liver and then the blood supply going to it. We can actually, with catheters, really tiny catheters, go into a blood vessel in the groin and then manipulate them throughout the body and end up precisely within the liver to a very specific area where we can deliver these radioactive beads. So as you can see, these beads travel, uh, they get to the actual tumor nodule in the liver, and then uh, deliver high doses of radiation internally so you're not going in from the outside to, to damage uh, the, the normal tissues on the way to the liver. So big advances, I think, in radiation. And it used to be that it, we were fearful of radiation because it caused a lot of damage to normal tissues. Now we can very precisely target it in a way that's much more effective. Uh, and this is, for example, uh, a PET scan picture that shows this, is, uh, this would be the outline of the liver and there's uh, at least two tumor nodules there that light up bright on that PET scan that I showed you. And after microspheres, now those, not, those areas become, we call them cold, so that we've treated with that radiation and been able to hopefully destroy those cancer cells. Now, let me switch to something else uh, in advances in surgery. Uh, this is robotic surgery. Yes, we can use robotic technology. And uh, the way it is, uh, this is... Uh, sort of a schematic of what it would look like, but this would be what you would see in the operating room. There's an operating room table. Um, the patient would be on the table, and then these arms, there's four arms that would put uh, instruments inside the belly, 
And then the surgeon is actually sitting in this console. Here at the hospital, it's in the same room, but it could be someone clear across the world. And has this couple little joysticks here and with his fingers uh, and in three-dimensional view can operate this little unit and uh, control these arms and then operate with inside the patient. Now, this is probably it, it, what is more precise than we can do with our own human hands. First of all, the image that we see is, is highly magnified. So in other words, uh, what we would normally see at about this size in the body, it's this big on a screen. Uh, the instruments that are used uh, have more reticulation than a wrist. So the instrument at the tip of it has a mechanical wrist that has more degrees of freedom than the actual human wrist. And so you can manipulate in so many different directions. And with that much magnification, very, very precisely make moves inside the body. So very effective uh, technology. People are using this a lot for gall, well, not so much for gallbladders, but other uh, types of uh, more precise operations like a prostate cancer operation. Gallbladder surgery can be done with laparoscopes without the need of the use of a robot. And it's probably quicker and a little cheaper not to use the robot, actually. There's a lot of instruments that need to be uh, used uh, to, to do this procedure. Uh, one of the examples, this is actually what you would see inside the abdomen if you're doing a uh, laparoscopic or robotic procedure. And in this case, uh, we use cryoablation or freezing of a kidney tumor. So maybe I'll go here. So this is a nodule that's uh, in, within the kidney, which is a larger outline here. This is some fat inside the belly, and you can see some blood vessels. Uh, but this has now a needle passed into the tumor, goes through the abdominal wall, and it's under direct vision. And then you freeze. This is a ball of ice. Uh, and now here it's thawing and can kill a cancer cell that way. So you can either use heat uh, or cold, which a cancer cell does not like, uh, and destroy the cancer in a very limited way. So that's some newer technology in terms of how to destroy cancers. Uh, and in medical oncology, we've actually made a lot of advances. I don't have cool pictures, but they, uh, they do. Uh, we, we have developed many newer chemotherapies, and in particular, targeted therapies. And so what we've learned now is that cancer cells have uh, unique uh, footprint or fingerprints, you might say, on the surface, molecules that can be recognized, and then we can have very specific drugs that target those very specific molecules on the cell surface. One of the ways we make advances in cancer is uh, through research, and in particular through clinical trials. Clinical studies uh, are those that help us try maybe a new compound or compare one compound to the other, and then in a scientific way, with a scientific method, either prove or disprove that it's better, equal, or inferior to another, another compound. And so we've developed many different clinical trials uh, uh, for, for a variety of patients and participate in many national studies. But I wanted to lead into melanoma, which is an area of particular interest of mine. And uh, I'll show you, this is what melanoma looks like. Now, here is where uh, I should have, hopefully, everybody's attention, because melanoma is a cancer that affects young people. You saw in that slide uh, earlier, one of the earlier slides, cancer in general affects uh, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, you can have cancer at a younger age. But this is one cancer that affects people across the board at all ages. Um, we had a referral two weeks ago for an eight-and-a-half-year-old with melanoma. And you'll see in a minute why, why it's uh, a concerning 
cancer. So it starts like this on the skin surface. Uh, it's, it's an important cancer to be aware of because it's rapidly rising. The most modifiable risk factor is sun exposure, and we believe this has to do with tanning. Our sun exposure habits uh, are leading to this kind of curve, and you can see from 1975 through to 2007, the latest date for which we have data, it is rapidly rising. It's one of the most rapidly rising cancers. How do we prevent it, ideally prevent it? We prevent it by controlling the most modifiable factor, as I mentioned, which is sun exposure, and so trying to limit times of the day, wearing certain protective clothing, hats, sunglasses, sunglasses because you can't put sunscreen in your eyes, and uh, use sunscreens with SPF 15 or higher. And the last one I put on there, avoiding tanning beds. I want to share with you some of the evidence of why not to use tanning beds. So I see a few of you smiling a little bit. You probably have used tanning beds. Uh, in 2009, the World Health Organization classified tanning beds as carcinogenic. So the other two things in the same category are arsenic and tobacco. Those are carcinogenic. So similar category, tanning beds uh, rank right up there. Perhaps, though, the most uh, important evidence that we just developed is that, uh, and this is a study that was just published last year, that uh, uh, indoor tanning, regular indoor tanning, does raise your incidence of melanoma by 75%. So any, any use of tanning raises the incidence, but the regular use of it uh, raises the incidence by 75%. How do we find it? Find it early, uh, and so you just have to look everywhere on your body. Uh, strip down, stand in front of a mirror, and uh, look for any moles. And what would you look for? The A, B, C, D, E's, if a spot is uh, asymmetric. In other words, one half does not look like the other half. It has a regular border. It has color that is different, and some parts are lighter and some parts are darker. Size, and none of these are absolute. So you could have a tiny melanoma, you could have a big melanoma, but if it's more than a quarter inch, you begin to think about it, and then evolving if it's uh, changing. Why do we worry about melanoma? Even though it starts on the skin, it can go into the body and affect an organ. For example, this is a, on the left is a chest x-ray that should normally look like this on the right, but here on the left you see all those nodules in the lung. Those are tumor nodules that have spread from that skin spot into the lung. And so someone that has an x-ray like this, we expect to live about six or seven months. And we tell them that only about 10% will live five years. So it's very, very difficult to treat once you develop metastatic melanoma. But the other point of this slide is that with a treatment called interleukin-2, a biologic treatment that stimulates the body's immune system, we can actually uh, obtain very good responses. So this person in 1985, and this was one of the early days of my fellowship uh, in Bethesda, uh, a patient that came in with metastatic melanoma, treated with this interleukin-2, and had a, a complete regression or remission of his metastatic melanoma. So if you can see a clear, a clear x-ray on the right. But that, uh, was one of the building blocks of the clinical trial that uh, Jim had mentioned earlier uh, that received recognition uh, with the vaccines. And so I want to tell you a little bit about the vaccines. So if you have uh, uh, an immune system now, a healthy immune system, and believe it or not, cancer patients do have healthy immune systems, you can try to boost that immune system 
which is usually going to mean working with the lymphocytes or the white blood cells that are circulating in your body to uh, get them to recognize the cancer, supercharge them against that particular cancer, and then come in with this interleukin-2 treatment, this growth factor for lymphocytes, to multiply them and create now an army of these uh, little tumor-fighting uh, lymphocytes and hopefully destroy the, uh, the cancer cells. So that was our thinking that uh, we could develop now a better treatment than what we had with the interleukin-2, the IL-2 treatment that I mentioned to you. And so we design a trial. And what does a randomized trial mean? It means that by the flip of a coin, well, you have a computer do it, so you don't actually have a coin, but sort of by the flip of a coin, you allocate you know, half the patients go into one arm, half go into the other arm. And so one arm receives the conventional treatment, which in this case is the interleukin-2 alone. The other arm receives interleukin-2 and vaccine. And the question then was, uh, which one works better? Which one causes more remission of cancer? Which arm uh, will result in better success? And in this trial uh, that was done across the country and actually coordinated uh, through the Goshen research team, uh, we learned that the experimental arm, the interleukin-2 plus vaccine, had twice as many clinical responses as the interleukin-2 only arm. So you have a 20% versus 10%. So that uh, demonstrated, uh, it, it actually answered the question that we had set out to to ask about, is there benefit of vaccine? And we did conclude then that, yes, the vaccine was effective, but that we needed to develop more potent now vaccines. Because as you saw there, if only 20% of patients benefit from that, that means you know one out of five benefits, but then four out of five don't. Uh, and they'll probably go on to die from their melanoma. So we have to do better. Once we develop a better vaccine, then we can perform, I think, a larger, a larger clinical trial. And I, I put this slide in because I didn't want to forget to mention that with all this technology and all these advances, we still need to hold the patient at the very center of what we do. And it's not a matter of just treating a physical ailment, but we also focus on the emotional, the spiritual, the psychological, and all the psychosocial issues that are so important uh, to any one individual, regardless of what health problem they have. Uh, we want to consider uh, the patient at the center and offer a healing, a healing perspective. And so if I come back to my first slide about learning, lifelong learning, and sort of the theme behind all this, uh, here's a quote from Harry Truman that I, I like and I think is very true. So it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. And so for all of, the, all of you graduating right now, it's not the end of the learning. In fact, uh, the learning just begins. You're coming out with a degree or you're all working on your degrees. And I think it's, it's, it's the life experiences and uh, the listening, taking time to, to, to absorb what's around you uh, and add to that uh, very important and fundamental learning that you've done here that will, I think, uh, serve you well through the rest of, of your life. So I will stop there, and I'm not sure if we can take questions. If I've stimulated anything, is there time for that? Or is that, is that normally the format, or no? They can, oh shoot, well come up and talk to me then. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll stop here. <laughs>